On behalf of Lineberg Information Services, this is Bob Keebler, and joining us today is Attorney Ron Olcott of McGuire Woods and former president of AgTech to talk about the new IRC Section 2704 proposed regulations. Welcome, Ron. Thank you, Bob. Ron, from a big picture perspective, why should the 2704 proposed regulations concern planners? Well, there are, of course, transactions that uh, clients are used to engaging in or might engage in for the first time that are going to be impacted by these regulations. Just about anything involving an entity, a family-held corporation, LLC, partnership, something of that sort, is going to have to uh, be entered into and transfers of interests in that thing are going to have to be made with a view to these regulations uh, with that in mind. So uh, any advisor, uh, an attorney, a financial planner, a CPA, uh, who has uh, contact with uh, clients who could be or have been doing these kinds of things should be up to date on these rules as much as possible. From a mathematical perspective, Ron, how serious are these regulations and do they impact both the minority interest and the marketability valuation adjustments? These regulations are uh, quite a bit broader than a lot of people expected. Uh, They have surprised me at how broad they are. Uh, I had thought that certain kinds of restrictions, certain kinds of discounts, and that kind of thing would be curtailed, if uh, not entirely eliminated. But what these proposed regulations do uh, is to take an approach that I don't think many people saw coming, and that is to measure a, a baseline, if you will, as the pro rata net fair market value of the underlying assets owned by the entity. That is the fair market value of those assets minus debts uh, of the entity, and then, of course, multiplied by the percentage or fraction that's represented by that interest, a a kind of liquidation value, assuming that liquidation can be done without any costs, I suppose. Any restriction that limits the ability of a member of the entity to acquire that kind of value in exchange for his or her interest, uh, sometimes described as a put right, to put that interest to the entity or in some cases other owners of the entity and obtain that value. Any such restriction is a so-called disregarded restriction for purposes of the new regulations. Now, because it looks to the ability to sell or just assumes away for valuation purposes any inability to sell, that the marketability discount is the target. But in fact, Many times it is the value of the underlying assets of the entity that is the starting point, and all discounts, uh, including marketability discount, of course, but also including a minority interest discount or lack of control discount, work off of that baseline number. So I see that without picking any particular 
discount. Uh, it, it's all just some total percentage, and like dollars, I guess percentages are fungible. These proposed regulations are, are going to affect almost any kind of a discount that would be taken with regard to the fact that this property is being held in some kind of a family-owned entity. So, Ron, if a business has assets worth $100 million and liabilities worth 40 the minimal value, and that's what the regs are calling it, the minimal value would come up at 60 Are you saying that if I own 20% of that, we just multiply, and I'm one of 10 family members involved in this business, we just multiply the $60 million of equity by my 20%, and that's what I'd report on my federal estate tax return? Not necessarily. I mean, that is a, a look-through valuation approach that has been proposed uh, in some legislation over the years, perhaps going back into the mid-90s. Uh, this does not exactly take that approach. The proposed regulations would use your $12 million. That's just the 20% of the total $60 million net fair market value to evaluate whether you had the right as a member of the entity to redeem your interest for $12 million. Uh, if there was some restriction that prevented you from having that right, then that restriction would be ignored. The entire interest that you own then is going to be valued just as if you had the right to put your interest back to the entity. And there's a six-month period for that. So on six months' notice, you'd have the right to be bought out by the entity. It would be valued as if you had that right. You wouldn't have to actually have that right, but it would be valued as if you had that right uh, in effect. But even so, in, in uh, my experience, I find that sometimes there are still other discounts that would be preserved even in that kind of an analysis. For one thing, if it is a family-owned entity, even if there is a right to require the other family members to buy you out, an unrelated investor, the so-called hypothetical willing buyer that we talk about so much, is going to look at the need to deal with your family, even as a matter of right, and compare that to dealing with some well-known financial institution, for example, and would prefer to invest with the well-known financial institution. Even though the, the dollars are the same, the predictability, the reliability, maybe even the trust uh, is higher when dealing with someone or some institution that the investor knows rather than some family members of the seller the investor doesn't know. Uh, that would mean that the investor would insist on a lower price, a discount in buying something that is a family entity compared to something else. And, and that discount would survive the application of these proposed regulations, I'm pretty sure. The problem is the size of that discount, the quantity, is much less than the many tens of a percent that we're used to when we're talking about lack of marketability and lack of control discounts. Ron, there's a new three-year rule under the regulations 
as they deal with Section 2704A. Can you walk us through that? Yes, I can do that. Uh, as, as much as the regulations give us any clarity or insight into that, uh, this three-year rule was also kind of a surprise, but it grows out of a desire that I understand to provide bright lines. And the IRS and Treasury were especially concerned about dealing with transactions of value that either escape transfer tax or have a discounted value for transfer tax purposes on one's deathbed. And since deathbed is not a bright line test, a three-year rule that we have in the law for some other purposes as what many regard as uh, an improved substitute for an old contemplation of death rule uh, that was very subjective, uh, that seemed to be uh, attractive sitting there on the shelf inviting selection. So uh, the drafters of the regulations uh, pulled down that three-year principle and applied it here. When we're looking at Section 2704A, we're looking at uh, the lapse of either voting rights or a right to compel a liquidation of the entity. This is different from the main thrust of these proposed regulations that looks more at the individual interest rather than the entity as a whole. That's Section 2704B. But Section 2704A uh, looks at the entity, the ability to liquidate the entity or to control the entity. And when somebody uh, does something who, and, and they before doing that had control and or ability to cause a liquidation, and they, they lose that ability in the transaction, that is called a taxable lapse. Section 2704A said whatever value is represented by that control and or ability to liquidate is going to be treated as a taxable gift at that time. If it happens at death, it would be treated as a transfer at death and in included in the gross estate. There is an exception in the regulations, though, for an event in which the control or the ability to compel liquidation stays with the interest that is transferred. If I give you something, Bob, or you give it to me, typically whatever rights we had before the, the transfer will go on to the other person and stay with that thing that is transferred. Now translate that into a family setting. Uh, if I give to a family member, uh, my voting stock, let's say, well, then I don't have the control anymore. They do, but I have two sons, so if I give half of it to each of them, neither of them has as much control as I had when I had it all. But even so, the regulations say, don't worry about that. We won't treat that as a lapse because the right to control in this case stays with that interest. The new feature in the proposed regulations is to preserve that result if the transferor, the donor, me in my example, 
will survive for three years. But if death occurs within three years, then whatever lapse was prevented by that exception at the time, in my example, I made the gift to my two sons, that's going to be treated as a lapse that occurs at the time of my death. Now, there are a lot of things that we don't know for sure. Does it have to be revalued as of the date of death? What does it really mean for it to be included in the gross estate when there really isn't anything there to pass on at that time to somebody else? Uh, what about marital deductions? Well, that answer is probably pretty simple and pretty harsh. Forget about it, uh, even if there is a transfer of death to the surviving spouse. But even that might be clarified in a helpful way in the final regulations. So there are a lot of things we don't know uh, other than that transfer survives for three years, then there's nothing to worry about. Obviously, this is not just a deathbed thing. No one can be sure they will survive three years after making a gift. I guess that means that every time we're counseling anybody about making a gift, once these rules take effect, that we have to include some kind of anticipation, some kind of preparation for the possibility that uh, things will uh, have to be recalculated in a special way if they die within three years. Ron, your analysis of the three-year rule has been very insightful. The regulations cover basically regulatory changes to both 2704A, the three-year rule, and 2704B, another set of rules. Many commentators are initially indicating that the changes under 2704A, those regulations, are far less meaningful because the changes under the regulatory scheme under 2704B are just so impactful, even devastating. What are your thoughts on that? Well, that's a very good question because uh, we give a lot of attention. And of course, in my explanation, I gave a lot of attention to this three-year rule. Uh, but one can wonder whether these things that we're talking about under Section 2704A as lapsing are also the kinds of things that would qualify as a disregarded restriction and therefore would in fact be disregarded when the gift was made in the first place under the new regulations under Section 2704B uh, with the result that even if the transfer dies within three years, there's not much left to account for. Uh, I doubt that the match is perfect. I think that in some cases there will be something to account for. And while I don't think the regulations make a serious distinction between, for example, a lack of marketability discount and a lack of control discount, uh, this might be a case where a, a lack of marketability discount, in effect, is disallowed for purposes of the initial gift under the new regulations proposed under Section 2704B. But there's still an element of, of lack of control discount that remains that then would be treated as having lapsed at the time of death if the transfer survives that gift 
uh, by less than three years. That is very hard to quantify, and it becomes you know, almost mystical to think about these things as being subject to such different regimes. I'm assuming that because uh, the regulations apply only two or three tests and appraisers, of course, as we all know, uh, have a much more complicated task than just applying two or three factors, that there are elements of the appraisal that are going to have to be revisited if uh, somebody who's made a gift subject to these new disregarded uh, restriction rules dies within three years of that gift, yes. Ron, when will the proposed regulations become effective? They are proposed to be effective in general uh, when the regulations are finalized. I know a lot of people were worried about the possibility that they would be proposed to take effect as of the date that they are proposed, that is to say uh, August 2nd. But the, uh, the proposed regulations do not take such a harsh view and say that uh, in general, everything that's proposed in the regulations will take effect when the regulations are finalized and not before. In one respect, uh, the regulations are actually even more generous, and they will not take effect by their terms as proposed until 30 days after they are finalized with respect to this new category of disregarded restrictions that looks at the pro rata value and the ability to put the interest to the entity to be redeemed within six months and all that kind of thing. Uh, all of those uh, rules, uh, not, not the three-year rule that we talked about under Section 2704A, uh, but all the, the new and most uh, expansive, the most broad rules on disregarded restrictions will not take effect until 30 days after the final regulations are published in the Federal Register. So we clearly have a little bit of time. What happens if a client makes a large transfer, let's say today, before the effective date of the final regulations, but then dies within three years of making the gift, but he dies after the regs have been finalized? Do we have, clearly that recapture occurs if you die after the regulations have been finalized, but what if you gift before the effective date and die after the effective date? Well, that's an excellent question, uh, and I wish the regulations gave a clearer answer. Uh, I, I think that what was in mind was that it would not apply in that case, that it only apply when the gift that is being clawed back, so to speak, has been made after the effective date. Uh, that is the, uh, the the right answer, but I just can't be sure about that. The, uh, the regulations do not say one way or the other very clearly. There is language to suggest that because uh, in the case of the gift, the, the lapse is being treated as having occurred on the date of death, and the proposed effective date relates to the date that the lapse occurs, 
that it's only the date of death that matters for purposes of the effective date. And in the case you described, Bob, where somebody makes a gift today uh, but dies within three years yet after the effective date of the regulations and the lapse is treated as having occurred then, uh, then there could be a, a clawback. In fact, there could be an even bigger clawback because we wouldn't have already had the increase in the value of the gift for gift tax before those rules took effect. Uh, ironically, an even harsher application of the three-year rule in the case that you described. Uh, I, I don't believe that as as a matter of good administration and prudence and just old-fashioned self-restraint, the IRS and Treasury intended such a result, or if they did intend it, uh, that they won't be persuaded to reconsider that and give us a favorable clarification when the regulations are finalized. Uh, But I just can't be sure at this time. Ron, what are you and your colleagues suggesting to clients right now and in the weeks to come? Well, the easiest answer to that is is if there is something on my desk, I want to move it off my desk. If some client is considering uh, making transfers of interests in an entity that exists or creating an entity and then making some transfers, uh, if that is is underway, uh, then... Uh, we want to move with some dispatch. Uh, th- this doesn't mean that you know clients who otherwise would not do these kinds of transactions should now do them just because uh, the IRS has these transactions in its sites. But for a client for whom this makes sense, but they've been waiting, for something. Uh, Maybe they've been waiting because they just procrastinate. Maybe the delay is because we, the advisors, are procrastinating or have a lot to do or we're busy. Maybe somebody wants to wait to get an appraisal or something of that sort. I would do all I can to to accelerate that process uh, and, and get the transaction completed. Uh, even if, for example, in the case of the appraisal, uh, it is necessary to get the appraisal after the fact and then make whatever application of the results of the appraisal is necessary. Now, we're going to have a hearing on these proposed regulations on December 1st, so we know that we're not going to see final regulations before December 1st, and I think as a practical matter that you know we're not going to see them in December we're probably not even going to see them early next year but the farther i go the less certain i am it's easy to say look this statute was enacted in 1990 it took 13 years before we even had this regulation project on the treasury irs priority guidance plan and now another 13 years before we see the regulations in proposed form So obviously, they're not going to be finalized very quickly, and we have lots of time. I'm very uncomfortable with with that approach. I would not rely on that at all. And as I say, if we have something in the works, I'd I'd want to move that along. 
for other clients who have expressed any interest or look to us like maybe this is something they ought to contemplate. Well, this is a time to uh, to call them up or send them a letter and saying, uh, you know, you've we've talked about this from time to time in the past, but now maybe you want to think about it because the window might be closing and that kind of thing. That, that would be a, a short-term kind of reaction that, that's uh, kind of uh, an obvious one. Uh, another thing uh, is to look at estate planning documents, wills, trusts, whatever it is, and particularly the so-called tax apportionment provisions. Uh, if there are any, if there aren't any, then uh, we need to take a look at what the state law is going to do because the estate tax might be different now than we've anticipated. And the burden of it proportionally might be generated differently by the assets in the estate because of the operation of these rules, placing more of the burden than we might have thought attributable to these interests in these entities. And then, of course, the burden of the tax. Uh, we want to think about uh, whether it is appropriate to make, for example, the so-called residue of the estate pay all the tax, and if, there's, if that's really fair, if we think through the administration of the estate in light of these new valuation rules. And then, of course, in particular, if this three-year rule is applying where there's no asset there to apportion the tax to at all, then uh, it is especially important to make sure that that's covered in some appropriate way in the, uh, the will or the trust or whatever it is that governs the uh, estate in general. And then uh, finally, I suppose, uh, we should be looking at shareholder agreements, partnership agreements, LLC operating agreements, trust documents to the extent these things are held in trust, uh, anything of that sort that uh, affects the rights that shareholders, partners, LLC members, and other owners of entity interests have. Some of the restrictions that we talk about and which these proposed regulations are aimed at are derived from those governing documents. We want to see if perhaps now that something in that operating agreement, for example, that looked like a good idea at the time, now isn't so important because, among other things, it may not provide the tax benefit we were hoping. And maybe it ought to be rewritten a little more realistically to uh, reflect that and to uh, do more what, what the family would like to do if taxes were not so much a consideration. Those kinds of things. I, I don't know if that's a big project or a simple project. It kind of depends on the kinds of agreements we have and uh, the conversations we've had with clients about them in the past. But those are the things I would do. Uh, move current gifts along in an expedited way, check tax apportionment clauses, and then start reviewing the uh, operating and governing documents of the entities themselves. Ron, do you have any final thoughts? There's one other thing that's occurred to me, and, and that is the role of appraisers uh, and how important these new rules are going to be for appraisers. Uh, I think uh, they will obviously affect appraisals. Uh, typically, appraisers are thought of as 
taking the situation as they find it and then providing an appraisal. So I think that appraisers can expect that advisors, probably lawyers, that are involved in overseeing a transaction, either the administration of an estate or arranging for a gift, will tell the appraisers what features to take into account and what features are disregarded. Uh, Just as we give advice about title and ownership and other kinds of things that are more legal things than business or valuation things. So lawyers are going to have to be the ones on the front line interpreting these proposed regulations when they become final for the benefit of appraisers. But uh, I expect that appraisers themselves will want to and need to get to understand these rules too because they're going to uh, want to know what questions to ask us lawyers and others who are supposed to be giving them that advice. Sometimes they're going to be required to make quite artificial assumptions in order to comply with these new regulations. So it's pretty important that there be a good dialogue between the appraiser and the other advisors who can uh, help together understand and apply these regulations. Ron, this has been incredibly insightful. The knowledge you've just shared is going to help many people move through and understand these new proposed regulations. We really want to thank you for spending so much time with us today. You're welcome, Bob. On behalf of Lineberg Information Services, this has been Bob Keebler with Attorney Ron Olcott. Thank you for joining us today.